Uh, welcome to everyone who has uh, gathered here and for those that are watching us online. Uh, we are continuing our study through the book of Philippians. And we are going through Philippians chapter 2. We're going to cover two verses today, verses 12 and 13. As I prepare for these studies, uh, I like to cover a little bit more, but these verses are so rich and so deep that uh, we need to really digest God's Word, and in doing so, we cover only a few verses at a time. Now, in the future verses, uh, the passage may adjust so that we cover more, but in this particular instance, as well as last week, the passages have been relatively short. Uh, so with that, uh, let us stand for the reading of God's Word. If you turn to Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. The Word of God reads, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been good to us. You've shown us undeserved favor over and over. Thank you for sending your son who lived a perfect life to accomplish what was required so that we could be reunited with you, reconciled to you. We thank you for that. May your Holy Spirit this morning grant us the rest that we need, knowing that we are safe in Christ, the rock of our salvation. <clears throat> Remind us, Lord, that our salvation is evident by our character, by our lifestyle, by our worldview, by our words, by our attitudes. And convict us, Lord, so that we can turn to you this morning. We have to say Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let us have a seat. And as first we will notice, I have titled today's sermon, Work Out Your Own Salvation, which is straight from the text that we will be reading. Now, this particular topic of working out your own salvation has been twisted and abused by a lot of cults, that is, religious groups that are not Christian. And unfortunately, even sometimes within the Christian community, in order to lord over their members, in order to burden their members, and put expectations on them that are impossible to keep, in order for them to work at their own salvation. So we'll be Repealing that onion and finding out what does the text mean when it tells us to work out our own salvation so that when this topic comes up, either in our own thoughts and reflections or in conversations with others, or if somebody comes knocking at your door wanting to speak to you about work salvation, you can have an idea of what the scriptures mean when they say this, uh, this type of work in regards to our salvation. A quick recap, the book of Philippians is where Paul is driving the point home that the local church is to be unified. 
the local church is to serve one another. The way that we see whether we're serving one another is by showing humility, by loving each other, by serving each other, by confessing sins to one another, by living the Christian life with one another. And Paul is reminding us that the greatest example of the one who humbled himself to serve us was none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus is the greatest example of humility, of servanthood, of how to love others. So much so that He came into this world to save sinners. And as He's the only one who has what it takes to do it. Perfect life, perfect obedience, perfect humility, and a perfect sacrifice. 100% God, 100% man humbled himself entering his creation. So after Paul explains the humility of Jesus and how now God exalted Jesus to the highest place so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We spoke about that last week. Now Paul is telling us that in showing humility, in loving one another, in the way that Christ showed it, he is now telling the people that one of the signs, one of the things we must do is to work out our own salvation. That's the context of this passage. Be humble like Jesus is humble. Serve each other. Live the Christian life with each other. And in doing so, work out your own salvation. Just so we have clear what this concept and context is. So let us explore this idea of working out our own salvation. Many times when preaching about a particular topic or concept, we can continue to talk about that subject without defining what we mean. right? So it's important to know what do we mean in this case when we talk about salvation. What does the Bible mean when it talks about salvation for us? In many instances, throughout the Old and New Testament, salvation is referred to as salvation from harm, salvation from physical death, salvation from enemies that are coming after us. But ultimately, it does point us to a spiritual salvation. The psalm that we read this morning as a church it had even a flavor of that providentially by God, knowing that we would talk about this subject today. It just happened to be. But a lot of the Psalms talk about that. The Psalm is pleading with God to save him. And the immediate context many times in those Psalms is salvation from harm, from physical death. And we need to remember that the ultimate sense in which the Bible points to when it talks about salvation is salvation from spiritual death. Okay? So that's an overarching concept of what the scripture means by salvation. Now, let's dial it in a little bit more concisely now. What about spiritual salvation? What does that mean? Salvation from what? Because okay, we're going to talk about work out your salvation. Like, what does it mean? Salvation from what? When speaking about spiritual salvation, Scripture is clear what that salvation is 
from, what the saving is from. I like to remind us often of what that means. So there's three particular scriptures that will clarify what that salvation entails. First is Romans 5, 9, which I'll read. It says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 reads, And to wait for His Son from heaven, when He raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then one last one, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay. So, us as human beings, as sinners, we suppress the truth of God. We are enemies of God. And what we need to be saved from ultimately is not only physical harm, but ultimately the spiritual harm, spiritual death that will come from the wrath of God. Okay? We are being saved ultimately from the righteous judgment of God. In our world, if we break a law, the consequence of that law is going to be that we're going to have consequences, we're going to have punishment, payment, jail, community service, what have you, for breaking that law. In breaking God's law, because we are sinners by nature and choice, it implies that when we come before the Almighty Court of the Almighty God, we will be found guilty, and hence, the wrath of God, the consequence of our sin, will be upon us. Okay, so we are saved from the wrath of God. So why is that? Why is it that being sinners and coming before God in judgment requires the wrath of God? Why is that? Again, we need to understand that that's because of the character of God. If we were to come before a judge, and the judge, knowing that we are guilty of transgressing against someone else, lets us go, that judge would be a corrupt judge. That judge would not be a righteous judge. Not so with God. God is absolutely holy, and therefore He holds His standard of perfection. Nobody gets a free pass. So the wrath of God then comes because He is holy and He cannot let sin go. It is against His righteous character to do so. So let us take a quick look at a couple of scriptures that talk about the character and nature of God and His holiness. First, let's take a look at Isaiah 6, verse 3. It says, And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Points us to the holiness of God. Before we understand that we are sinners, we need to know that God is holy. The holiness of God. Psalm 96 verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Again, this, this visual, the splendor of greatness, of holiness, of how God is separated from His creation because He is so righteous, so perfect. Mm. 
Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we ought to strive not only for peace, but also strive for holiness. Right? To be clean before God. Because we are told, without that holiness, we will not be able to see, to be with, to enjoy God. Okay? So then the reason why the wrath of God, God's judgment, comes upon sinners is because God is holy. And no one will get a pass. He is then the absolute standard of perfection, of goodness, of moral purity that we could ever imagine. And He is separated from us because of His holiness. Let us really remember that. God's holiness, His perfect justice cannot be violated. Then we, as sinners, have nothing to offer God. Nothing. Nothing good in us. Other than pleading with Him to give us mercy, to give us grace, so that the wrath of God does not come upon us. Okay, we need to seek the way out. This would be likened to being in need of money and exhausting all our credit with however many creditors you can imagine. And we do this for years. Maybe 10, 20 years. And at the end of those of that period, you realize, oh, I need to start paying my, my creditors. And you come up with a plan and you say, okay, I have perhaps another 20 years of, of work and labor that I can do. So let me see what I can pay back. And you realize that even if all the money that you make in those remaining years of your fruitful labor, even if you pay them all that money, you will fall short, so short of paying your debtors that they're not going to let you go. That's a small way in which we could imagine the debt that we owe God. We owe God a moral debt that even if we were good enough from now to the day we die, would not be enough to pay God for breaking His law. That's how much indebted we are into God because of His moral purity, because of His perfection. So then there is a solution after we know what the bad news are. And that is that God Himself, Jesus Christ, God, God Almighty in the flesh, humbled Himself, entered His creation, was obedient, up until the point of death, death on a cross. And that's what Paul has just told us in the book of Philippians. He died the death that you and I deserve, so that the wrath of God, remember, the wrath of God, comes upon disobedience. Even though Jesus was perfect, He never disobeyed, He was the perfect sacrifice that was able to bear the wrath of God, so that all those who confess sins to Jesus, who trust in Jesus and His righteousness, will be able to have the righteousness of Christ in them, and therefore be reconciled to God, because the justice of God has been satisfied in the perfection of Jesus. All that to say, that's what is meant by salvation. We are saved from God's wrath, His righteous judgment, because of our rebellion. And this passage now talks about what that salvation implies. 
what does it mean that we need to work out that salvation? Right? Let's keep that in mind. So we're going to do that in two phases. Right? Many times our sermons are three points. Well, last week and this week, it's two points. Right? But they're very deep. So let us remember and reflect what those two points are. First, we're going to see that God expects something from us. What does God expect from me in my salvation? Remember, Paul is talking to Christians, okay? And we're going to see that here. What does God expect from me in my salvation? And secondly, why does God have such expectation? Okay? Let us understand those two things. And as we go through this, let us then ask ourselves, was I aware? Am I aware that something is required of me? And in that requirement that God has, am I laboring at it alone? Am I just tripping over and over with the same stone, trying to make things better, and I just can't do it? Am I laboring alone? So let us look at the first point. What does God expect from me? And that will take us to the first verse of the two that we are focusing on today. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul begins this portion of Scripture with a word of encouragement. Remember, the book of Philippians' overall theme is encouragement to the Philippian believers. Jesus, being our example of serving in humility, now we need to serve one another. And the encouragement is that the Philippians have obeyed. Paul says it right here. Right? He is admonishing them and encouraging them, letting them know that so far they have obeyed. Remember that the book of Philippians does not point us to any grave error in doctrine as the Corinthians or the Galatians have fallen to. Paul commends the Philippians for being righteous in their faith. And here specifically, for the Philippians having obeyed. So Paul begins with a word of encouragement. Before telling them to work out their own salvation, he says, you have obeyed. Right? So then, let us ask ourselves here, in self-analysis, have we obeyed? Do others know that we obeyed Jesus? Is that evident in our lives? This reminded me of an anecdote with a dear co-worker of mine who is a brother in Christ. Him and his wife have moved houses and moved neighborhoods. They had <coughs> prayed and decided that it was time for, for them to look for, for another church. And he told me that as they were checking out different churches in their new neighborhood, <clears throat> that there was this relatively big church and that when visiting that church, he saw another co-worker of us. And he jokingly said, oh, I would never thought that so-and-so was a Christian. Unless I saw him there. To which I responded, wait a minute. Would he have known that you're a Christian? Had he not seen you there? He's like, ah, oh, you got me. Right? Yeah, we laughed, but that's true. If someone hadn't seen you here, would they know that you're a Christian? Would they know that you obey Jesus? Just as Paul is, is encouraging the Philippians that they have 
believe that they have obeyed. How about us? Is it evident that we obey? Or unless somebody saw you here, oh wow, I would have never guessed that you are a church goer. Do people know that you are obedient to Christ? As Christians, do we obey, do we pray, and do we act in a godly manner? Not only when we're being seen or are in fellowship with other believers, but rather when we are out in the world, working, in school, laboring, running errands at the store, etc., etc., is it evident at that point that we are indeed Christians, that we are indeed obeying Jesus? So that our conduct can be shown as a testimony that we are children of God. So then, let our commitment to Christ consume the entirety of our life, rather than being a part-time actor. Let us be consumed with obedience in the entirety of our life. So with that said, with the encouragement that we have obeyed, let us pray that we have obeyed, then Paul says to keep working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. <clears throat> our salvation, <clears throat> which is becoming reconciled with God, how does that happen? <clears throat> how do we become saved? We talk about what being saved from, right? Where we cover that. Is it that we strive and work really hard so that God can accept us? Is that what we do? Or maybe that we cooperate with God. God throws us a hand, but yet we, we, need, to, we need to hustle. We need to do this and that and the other in order to collaborate in our salvation. Or does God and God alone do the work? Of salvation for us. And if so, what do we mean by that? Let us analyze the context of what Paul is saying first by noting that this text is not talking about how one gets saved. It's not talking about that. Paul is addressing Christians and he just told them that they have been obedient so far. So this verse is not talking about how a person becomes saved. We know that because Paul has addressed them as saints. Paul has already addressed them as participants in the Holy Spirit. Paul has told them that there's a sign of their salvation because they have progressed in joy in their faith. And then in this very passage, he's told them that they were obedient. Okay, so... So far, in the chapter and a half of Philippians, Paul has already told them that. He is addressing them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Further confirmation that this verse is not talking about how somebody is saved comes from a couple of scriptures, which hopefully we can quickly retrieve or at least know what the scriptures talk about. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'll read it to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 2 9. 
Similarly, Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there, we are clear where God does talk about how somebody is saved, how somebody is born again. It is clear that it's not by us working, by us doing something to gain favor with God. It is not that. It is absolutely clear then that by human effort, by good deeds, as good as those may be, no one has or will ever be saved by those good works. Reconciliation with God will never be a result of human works. It is not in our terms. So if that's not what this verse is talking about, then what is it talking about? Let us be reminded then that the Bible talks about salvation often in three different phases. First, let us realize that the Bible talks of salvation in the past tense. As an example, in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, it says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. So we see a couple things in this verse. First, is that we have been saved. That's past tense. And that was not of works. Again, that's reinforced. It's not anything that you did. And then that as being saved, it implies that we are called to a certain type of holiness. That's a clue, right? Into what we are reading. Into holiness. And even that is not because of us. Is because of God's grace and it is for His purpose ultimately. Alright? So, past tense, if we have been saved. And then there's many passages that talk about present tense, being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul there, in 1 Corinthians, is talking about us that are being saved. Does it mean that Paul was not a believer before, and right at that moment he's now being saved? No, that's not what it means. It means that they are, they are saved, but yet they are being saved continuously. It's an active form of the word, being saved. Okay? Active, present, being saved. And then, there's a future tense a future sense in which there's a salvation that we are yet to attain. One of those verses is Romans 13, 11. It says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So looking towards that salvation that is now drawing more and more near. So then what do we see? We see that often when the scripture refers to a past tense in our salvation, it's talking about justification. The point in time in which God drew us to himself, awakened faith in us. He gave us that breath of spiritual life 
And now we understand who Christ is. We understand our need for Him as our Savior. We repent and we turn to Him. And we are justified. And we're justified just as if we've never done anything wrong. Justified before God. Past tense. If we're truly in Christ, that won't change. We are saved. Then the present tense is the everyday battle of becoming more and more like Jesus. What is that? It's our sanctification. That's the outer working of our inner faith. Sanctification then would be the ongoing process of our salvation. The New Testament talks a lot about sanctification, about checking ourselves to see if we're indeed in the faith. And if we are indeed in the faith, we're going to be in perseverance day after day after day. The future, when salvation is drawing even more near than what we first believed, like that reference we just read in Romans 13, 11, is the future, the glorification, when we finally meet Jesus face to face, when we are present with Christ in a glorified state. That's what we're looking forward to. Ultimately, where our salvation will take us. So, justification, we are now saved. Sanctification, this is the daily battle that we're going through right now. And then glorification is going to be here before we know it. So then, my brothers and sisters, if indeed we are a child of Christ, there has to be an outer working of our salvation that is being carried out with fear and trembling, that is, with the utmost reverence towards Christ. There is the necessity that our life is showing the fruits of our labor, our labor in the Lord, the labor of our salvation, not to gain salvation, but because we are saved, it is a showing of our daily battle, our daily fruit, that we are being sanctified. The book of James talks a lot about that. We covered the book of James in previous times here at church, which in a nutshell tells us, if your faith is genuine, it will be evident by your works. If you say you have faith, but your works don't show it, then that faith is dead, is worthless. So then, the working out of our faith, of our salvation, is the sanctification that we're living day to day. It is not to gain salvation. That will take us to point number two. The reason why God has this expectation of us working out our own salvation. Why is that? How does working out our salvation work? Philippians 2.13, it says... For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Right. Where is the motivation, the passion, the desire? Where does that come from? So that we can abide in God and have the desire to work out our salvation, to show the fruits of our faith. Where does that come from? Remember the previous verse tells us to work out our salvation. And it does not tell us to work for our salvation. Hope that is clear. Work our salvation, now work for your salvation. 
which is the way in which all the cults twist that. They tell you, you must do, you must do this to be safe. Let's be careful with that, brothers and sisters. So the reason why this sanctification, this ongoing salvation is necessary and is expected is because God has given us what is needed to accomplish it. He tells us that He, God, is the one who works in us to will. I don't want to do it. Well, God works that will for us. So yes, I, I, I want to do it. It's going to be difficult, but I want to do it. And then to actually carry out that work. It is God who does that. And God alone. So then, we are left with pondering that, am I a child of God? Have I been born again? Do I have new desires that aim to please God? Do I hate sin? Or am I just falling into sin and just dwell there? I'm not even bothered by it. Or does the Holy Spirit convict me to the point where it doesn't leave me alone? I cannot continue in sin. Where is our spirit when it comes to our conviction? Do I hate sin? Do I hate falling into sin? Do I grieve when I fall into it? If I am grieving, if I am grieved, if I know that my fellowship with God has been broken and I don't like it, that's a good sign. Because God is calling you to repentance. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads as follows. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Then we see that God is the one who allows us to be born again. Meaning, gives us a new nature, a new spiritual nature. We are sensitive to spiritual things. We understand spiritual things. We understand that we are in sin and that we need to repent. And God is the one who grants us that repentance. We went through that already in Philippians 1.29 in the previous chapter. God alone is the one who gives us those new desires. I'm often reminded, and I think I've shared with you guys, that when God saved me, some desires that were very strong prior to knowing Christ went away. Now, I'll grant you, some of those desires are still working on by God's grace, right? But... Some of those desires went away. And it's, it was something that I couldn't even understand. Like, hey, Gerardo, how comes you're not doing this and that and the other? Or hanging out with us here? Like, don't you want to? I'm like, man, that's pretty dumb. Like, I know, huh? <laughs> but I just don't want, I don't have no desire. Right? God is the one who gives us those desire to the point that we're even surprised. Is God giving those new desires? He is the one who has granted us salvation in the first place, and therefore He's the one who grants us those new desires. And a passage that reminds us that God is the one who willed our salvation, but it's not that we willed it, but God did. It's found in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It's talking about those that have become children of God. 
Like, how did that happen? It says, But to all who did receive him, that means Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who will that you were saved? Well, Lord, I raised my hand. I worked up and went to the altar. And I often say God has a sense of humor because that is how I got saved. That's how God saved me. But the real question is, why did I raise my hand? Or why did I walk up to the altar if indeed it was there when I was saved, which I think it was? It is only because God took those scales off my eyes and I was able to see the bigger price and be convicted of my sin to the point where I didn't care who was looking. Embarrassment was not even an issue because God drew me to Him. It was Him who willed at the appropriate time to call me to salvation. And such is the case with each one of you if you are indeed a child of God. When God calls you, you're going. Yelling, kicking, screaming, your family will hate you. Your spouse will despise you. You're coming. When that time comes and God calls you, you will be saved. And you're going to have joy against all odds, against anyone that hates you for it. And in that, we rejoice. Because if the God is for us, there's no one that can be against us. So then, we cannot boast of doing anything to gain our salvation or to keep our salvation. None. There's no boasting. Because God chooses the weakest, the most vile, to transform, to save us, so that He can get the glory, because He is the one who is alone worthy of that glory. However, it is still clear from this passage, and we cannot look away from the fact that there is an expectation from us. That's our second point of the sermon. There is an expectation from us to work out our salvation, that is, our sanctification, being saved. And this means to strive for obedience. To run the race, as Paul says, as if you're going to win, as if you want to win. Showing fruit in our life, being diligent to be a good witness for Christ. Checking ourselves to see if we indeed are in the faith. Repenting of our sin continuously. Seeking to reconcile daily with God, and with our brothers and sisters, with our family. So then there's this paradox that although God is the one who empowers us, He's the one who saved us, He's the one who willed that we be saved, He's the one who drew us to Him. But yet, there's a responsibility that God will find us liable for if we don't abide in obedience. If we don't show the fruit of our salvation, if we become lazy in our walk, if we turn the marvelous grace of God into cheap grace, we are responsible for that before God, my brothers and sisters. Because if God indeed is working in us, we have a responsibility to show that working in us in the way that we live. This is likened to the analogy of the two farmers. I'll remind ourselves what that was. There were two neighboring farmers, and they were in a dry season. No rain. Their stock is running out. 
And according to the predictions, it looked like the next season that they were preparing for was also going to be a dry season. So each of them, upon realizing this, both farmers went and found a quiet place to plead with God, to please bring the rain, to please grant them favor so that they can proceed with their labors in each of their farms. Now, the first one prayed diligently, earnestly, and then he waited. While the other one prayed in the same manner, and then said, I have so much faith that my Lord is going to grant me rain, that then he went up in his tractor day after day, tilled the ground, prepared the ground, planted the seed, ensured that everything was ready so that when God would provide the rain, he would be able to reap harvest. Out of those two farmers, only one was able to reap the harvest. One that prayed and waited. The other one that prayed and showed his faith by preparing for the rain. So what kind of farmer are you today, my brother and sister? Are you saying, God saved me, so praise him and I'll keep living my life however I please? Or do you believe and are diligent to work out the salvation that God has given you? To trust and obey God and be a good witness. To know that others can see your obedience, your allegiance to Christ. Then the key is that the providence, the grace, the sovereignty of God does not exempt us from our responsibilities as believers. Let us remember that. So then what can we say about these two verses that are so rich? Working out our salvation. And then why is it that we are required to show that outer work? Let us consider that our sanctification, our day-to-day -day working of our faith is difficult. I saw one time a comment that I thought was pretty funny in a sense, but it's true. It says, can somebody tell me what sanctification is like? And somebody said, it's like a never-ending game of rock and roll, right? So the figurines stick out and down and make them pull back in. It's really how that's like. Because our depravity, our sin, the old man, the old woman want to come back and peek out their head. With faith, with the word of God, mm. kind of repress it back down and remember that our identity is in Christ. This is hard work, denying ourselves, serving others, forgiving others, continue realigning of our purposes with the purposes of God. That cannot be done alone. It will never be able to be done alone. So then what we ask, what we ask ourselves at the beginning of the sermon is, am I going at it alone? All right, this time I got it. It's impossible. That's why we are told what is expected, and then we have 
the assurance, the consolation that Christ, God himself, is the one who is working in us to be able to press through and do it. It is not working for our salvation. It's working out our salvation if you're trembling. Knowing that the resources that God has, which is himself, his Holy Spirit, is the resource that we have to be able to make that happen. We cannot do it alone. God is the one who is working in us. So then let us ask ourselves, is God working in you? Do I have new desires? Or are we standing? Only we know the answers to this. Or maybe my spouse knows the answers to this. <laughs> but let us be honest. Are we persevering in our faith? Are we pressing forward as if we're running a race that we want to win? Are we being diligent? Are we being like the farmer that prayed and then put in the work knowing that God will provide? Then the life of a Christian, in closing, let us remember that is to believe, to obey, to trust, to worship, and to do. We need to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. We need to be prayer warriors for ourselves and for others but also doers. How many times have we prayed for a need that deep inside we know we could meet? And yet, we don't meet it. If there's a need in prayer that you can meet, do it. I guarantee you that God will honor that. And I don't mean that He'll give you twice or three or a hundred times back. That's heresy. He may. But what I mean is that God will give you joy. The joy of being able to trust and do. <clears throat> and ultimately, let us remember that this passage says that all that is done for God's good pleasure because of His character, because of who He is, who he is. because ultimately, God is going to get the glory. It is not us. We cannot boast on anything. It will be God and God alone who gets the glory for saving us who were not deserving, for being able to work out our own salvation that shows itself in good works, in loving one another, in loving those that are outside, in proclaiming His word, so that He can get all the glory. Let us ask them this morning that in our salvation, God will give us a desire to work it out so that others can see our salvation and draw them to Christ. With that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so gracious to us, Lord. You've shown us so much patience, so much caring, so much love. We ask, Lord, that that patience, that love, that care you've shown us will motivate us to obedience, to trust, and to action, Lord. That our character may be aligned with yours, or more and more like Jesus in our sanctification. And that as we do so, that you would receive all the glory, Lord. For it is only you that can produce that change in us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray for all the families that are represented here at Axel Form Church, 
that you may be with them, Lord, especially those that are suffering, those that are may, are sick, those that may be feeling down this morning or this week, Lord, that you would bring hope, a renewal in the mind and the heart, knowing that you are so good, Lord, that you're so gracious, that we can bring our burdens to you, Lord, and even to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, so that you may be glorified and so that we may be edified, that we may be remaining in hope that is only found in you. We praise you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus.